Uh, today we do want to kind of talk about a, a, a big question, all right, and, and it's, it's going to be a little bit different of a sermon, okay, this one's going to be more knowledge-based, uh, so don't sleep on me, please, okay, hopefully it, it will play out, uh, but when we get to the end, there may not be an invitation type thing, okay, so just be aware of that. Uh, today we want to ask this question, how should the church be ran uh, or governed? And this is a, a sticky question, okay, it's a hard question, because when you look at various churches, uh, you kind of see people have different answers to this. Uh, and, and a lot of the problem is this, is uh, the church, historically, when you look at it, uh, it more or less takes on the form of governments that the civil government was in. All right, so you can kind of look at churches and kind of say, okay, I know when in history you guys started. Uh, so, for example, the Roman Empire uh, was organized a certain way. There was an emperor, one guy on top, and then he had people underneath him who kind of governed different regions, uh, and then so on and so forth. And so when you look at the churches that were established then, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they run pretty much the same way. There's one guy on top, and then you have a bunch of other guys called bishops who, who kind of run different uh, regions, uh, of the world, okay? So that's kind of how they were established and the kind of took on the form of their civil government. Now, if you look at churches that were established in America, all right, post uh, the founding of our country, uh, what you will find is that those churches tend to form their church based on democracy. So the, everybody in the church has one vote and they get to decide what goes on in their church. And it's kind of interesting to see that. And I think the reason why this happens more often than not is because within the Bible, uh, while it describes a little bit uh, on how church should be ran, it doesn't really prescribe it. Okay, and, and this, is, this is important, okay? There's a difference between description and prescription. All right, description is basically saying this is how it kind of works, all right? And prescription is saying this is how you should do it. And, and when it comes to church government, there's not a lot of prescription. And the reason is, is because most of the times the writers of the New Testament, they were not worried about it. All right? they, they, they were dealing with other things. They were dealing with doctrine and false teachers walking around teaching wrong things. And they were writing to talk about those things. All right? Talking about this is what you should believe and this is how you should live. They weren't all too concerned about how the church should operate. And so uh, when it comes to description, the really the only thing that is described is the system of eldership, all right? And, and so as our church and, and the other churches that follow uh, kind of our background historically, uh, we kind of went back to the New Testament and said, okay, how did they describe it? And let's try to operate in that way. And so we have elders and we have deacons and they kind of run uh, manage, I think is a better word, the church. And so that it, it's a good way. Uh, it, it's, I think, the appropriate way. All right. But when we look at the New Testament, we have to understand that there's a difference between describing things and prescribing them. All right. And so when we look at this description of what it means to be an elder and what it means to run the church, we really only come across a handful of passages that kind of describe it. All right, and, and one of them is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, it's kind of long, so we're not actually going to look at that one today. Uh, last week we were in Titus 2, so I figured the more appropriate one to talk about today would be Titus 1. If you uh, 
uh, have already marked your Bible for Titus from last week, you should be ready to go this week. Okay, so uh, open your Bibles up to Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5 is where we're going to be at, and we're going to kind of look at what Paul says elders look like. Uh, Titus uh, is, is written by Paul to Titus. Titus is in the island of Crete, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the first four verses uh, of Titus are kind of a greeting where Paul says, I'm Paul, and I'm writing to you, Titus, uh, kind of our dear whomever of our letters, okay? And so we're going to start in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul starts with the meat of his, his subject, and he says this, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put into order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All right, so uh, Paul is writing to Titus, who's in Crete, and he says, I've left you in Crete. Now, Crete uh, is, is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. And so if you have in your head a picture of what the Mediterranean Sea looks like, uh, you could go to where Greece is and go almost directly south, and you would hit the island of Crete. Uh, The island of Crete was often called the island of cities uh, because there was a lot of cities on Crete, more than uh, was really necessary. And so pretty much there was a lot of different towns there. Uh, And Paul tells Titus, I want you to appoint elders in all of these little towns. Now, uh, when we look at the life of Paul, we are kind of left scratching our heads because we have no idea when he went to Crete. The book of Acts kind of tells us a lot about the life of Paul. Um, It ends while Paul is in prison uh, in Rome, and nowhere in the book of Acts does it say that he went to Crete. Now, traditionally, uh, we know that Paul left or was released from prison at the end of the book of Acts. He went around establishing more churches and then was put in prison again. So a lot of us assume that that it's during these time period before his uh, after his first imprisonment in Rome and before his second imprisonment in Rome that he went to Crete. What we do know is kind of the methodology that Paul used in establishing churches. Uh, we, we read about two, uh, three different journeys uh, that he goes on where he established churches in places where the church has never been. And in each of those situations, he would go into a town and he would talk to the Jews first. He would tell them about their Messiah. Some would accept it. Most would not. And then he would go to the Gentiles of that town, those non-Jewish people, and we would tell them about the Messiah, Jesus. And a lot of them would accept. And after a couple of months, he would leave that town and go to the next town. And he would do that all throughout a region, uh, almost like what we would call a state. Okay, so he would do that throughout the state of Missouri, if you will. But before he left that region, he would travel back to each one of those towns. And as he travels back, he appoints elders, men to lead the church while he's gone or when he leaves. All right, and so that's kind of his, his methodology. And it appears that as he's writing to Titus here, that while he's been decreed and while he started establishing Christians and churches, he didn't have time to put everything into order to establish elders, and so he's left Titus to do that task. And so he's going to, in the next few verses, kind of give Titus guidelines on what it means to be an elder. Now, it's important as we're reading this that that we understand a couple of things, okay? First off, we have to understand that that what Paul writes, he's writing uh, in the background of the first century Crete. And if you read uh, verses 10 and onwards the rest of the chapter, you'll kind of see what Crete was dealing with. And the the characteristics that he 
uh, gives the elders is in direct contrast to the false teachers that are going around. And so I think a lot of what we see uh, in these next couple verses is not checklists of what elders are. All right? It's not something that we can uh, put a person's name to and say, yes, yeah, no, no, yeah, and, and decide that way. I don't think that's what he meant for us to do. I think there's an overarching uh, guideline, and, and we'll talk about that in a second, okay? There's one word that I think is, is the one thing that we have to keep in focus, and everything else here is kind of describing what it means uh, to be blameless, all right? So we have to understand that. It's not necessarily a checklist, but it's kind of a description of what these men are going to be like. And so that's important to keep in our minds uh, and, 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 and stuff. So we're going to read verse 6. Uh, verse 6 says this. Uh, this is where Paul starts to talk about elders. He says, an elder must be blameless. All right? And so I think that's the key characteristic uh, of what elders should be. And so when we're looking at men and deciding whether or not they should be elders, that's the question we have to ask. Are they blameless? Now, this word is important, uh, but it's going to appear in the next verse. So we're going to skip it right now, okay, and go on to what, what everything else that Paul says. All right, the next thing he says is that he, they must be faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and, not, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. All right, so when we look at this word, uh, this is where it gets fun, okay? So stick with me. Don't space out on this, okay? All right, when he talks about being faithful to his wife, uh, that phrase is really hard to translate. All right, uh, if you have an older translation, what does yours say? says a husband, what's that? There we go. It says a husband and one wife, right? All right, so when we look at the Greek, here, here's what it says, okay? Uh, it says three words, one, woman, man. One woman, man. What does that mean? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it, okay? Here's the thing is, is it's really hard to translate. When we look outside of the New Testament, uh, we don't really see it used contemporary with what Paul says. We see it used a lot in the early church fathers, and they're all trying to decide what it means, all right, because they don't even know, and they have lots of different interpretations of it. And part of the problem is this, okay? Uh, in English, all right, we have two different words to talk about whether a woman is a woman or whether she's a wife, right? Two different words. If I say my wife, you know who I'm talking about. If I say my woman, it can get sticky and we don't really say it that way, do we? All right, same way with men, okay? There's one word for men and there's one word for husband in English, but for, uh, in Greek, it's the same word, man, okay? And so it gets kind of tricky. And there's a lot of passages this way, okay? Are they talking about a wife or are they talking about women in general? All right, and so it gets kind of, kind of sticky. And so when Paul says, one woman, man, what does he mean? And there's really four interpretations. And normally I don't tell you about these interpretations. I just tell you which one's the most viable. All right, but this one is really up for discussion because we don't know. And, and since the beginning of the church, they've never decided. All right, they couldn't figure it out. So I'm going to give you all four. I'll tell you which one I think is the most appropriate. And if you disagree with me, you're okay. Right, because you can believe something else because no one knows, and I don't know. All right? So the first one is this. Uh, the first one says that this tells us that the elder has to be married. All right? that, that's the first one. He, he has a woman. 
I one of them in particular, right? But he has to be married, all right? And so that's, that's possible. I mean, that could, it could be translated that way. It could be interpreted that way. Uh, but I think it leaves a lot of problems, all right? We have elders here. Uh, they are married. Uh, and if something, heaven forbid, one of their wives were to die, that would mean that if this means that he has to be married, that he would automatically be disqualified because he's a widower. And that's hard, all right? There are some good godly men who are widowers that are, I don't think, are disqualified from being elders, all right? Or, or you could take it this way, if, if uh, he never married in the first place, all right, what happens then? Does that mean he's not qualified to be an elder? And some people, <laughs> you can take it that way, and some people take it this way, and, and they argue, you know, as elders, they're going to have to deal with marriage counseling. If they've never been married, how can they do that? And I understand that, but I think it's hard because Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about marriage, and he says that, that it's better for us not to get married. And the reason why he says it's better not to get married in the first place is because you have more time to devote yourself to the kingdom's work. And so I think it's kind of weird for Paul to say that in 1 Corinthians and then turn around and say in Titus, well, they have to be married to be a, to be a leader of the church. And so this is, this is a viable, people, people say this, okay, but I don't necessarily think that this is what it means. All right, so I, I don't necessarily agree with that one. The next uh, way you can interpret this is another fun one, ready? You have one wife. That means you cannot be a polygamist. All right, and polygamy was something that happened. All right, this has some Old Testament backing to it. All right, the leaders in the Old Testament, they were supposed to only have one wife. Uh, when you look at the rules for a king, he was only supposed to have one. But then we look at the actual, what actually happened, right? And, and they didn't have one. All right, David, one of the greatest kings, he had at least three that I can recall. Right, his son Solomon, one of the wisest kings, how many did he have? A thousand, all right? A thousand wives and concubine combined, okay? That's a lot, all right? Wisest, that might be up for debate, right? All right, and so, so we see even, even some of the patriarchs, all right? Abraham, we don't really realize this, but Abraham probably had more than one wife, especially later on after Sarah dies. Jacob. He had at least two if you don't count the other two, all right? So even the leaders, even the patriarchs in the Old Testament, while, while they were to be monogamous, they weren't always, okay? But it was the ideal. It was a thing that they were supposed to do. Now, the problem that comes in with this interpretation is this. <coughs> when we, can you give me some water? Uh, when we uh, look at the culture of that day, while it was legal to get married to more than one wife, it wasn't highly looked upon. I mean, the culture of the day, yeah, you could be a polygamist, but it was not the highest virtue. And so it wasn't really an issue. Not every, there were some, but it wasn't a, a problem. And most of what Paul talks about uh, in Titus is dealing with the problems of the day. And if this isn't a problem, it would be kind of weird for Paul to make it an issue. All right, so if that makes sense, that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's not really an issue, and so I don't think that's what he meant by it. Now, these next two, you could go either way on it. 
right? it, it's very possible that this is what Paul meant. The first one uh, says it's talking about the number of marriages you can have, and that is one. And so this disqualifies a couple of people. It disqualifies anyone that's been divorced. All right? And so if you've been divorced, this interpretation would say uh, that you could not be an elder. It also disqualifies men who maybe had a wife that died when they were younger and they got remarried. All right, so widowers who got remarried would also be disqualified in this. All right, and, and, and this is, I mean, in that day, people died young. If you remember last week, it's like 30 years old was the average age. And so you could get married when you were 18, 20, and your wife die a few years later. The other issue that comes in is, is when it comes to divorce, divorce is sticky because Jesus, he gives reasons why you can get a divorce, all right? Jesus' reason is if there's uh, unfaithfulness in the marriage, all right? And that's a reason to get divorced. Paul gives us another one when he says you become a Christian and, and they're not and they abandon you, all right? And so there are reasons viable that, that are given in the New Testament for divorce, all right, and so if, if one of those happen, why does that automatically disqualify someone? That's kind of my question here. But again, this is one of those ones that people uh, hold to, and, and it could very well mean what it means. And that's where you see the translation, the husband of one wife, and some of the uh, older translations. All right, the last way uh, is the one that I think is the most likely. And the reason why I think it's the most likely is because it deals with the moral character of, of a person. I, uh, when we look at this idea that the elders to be blameless, we're talking about the moral character of who they are. All right, and so for me, uh, the way that you can interpret this is talking about his faithfulness in marriage. All right, if he has a wife, is he faithful to her? And it also fits the social setting very well as well. Right, the social setting uh, in the Greek-Roman world, uh, there was a different standard for wives than there were for husbands when it came to marital faithfulness. Uh, as a wife, you could not have any extramarital relationship or else you'd be killed. All right? It was capital crime, that type of thing. But men, I mean, if you went to the prostitute, oh well. If you had a, a side lover, oh well. It wasn't highly looked down upon. Right, and so it was one of those things almost expected in some cases. Right, and so when we're looking at that, and Paul's looking into this cultural setting, and he says, hey, you know what? If you're going to be a leader of the church, you have to be faithful to your wife. And, and for me, again, I, again, if you think it, it deals with divorce and remarriage, if you think it deals with this, if you think it deals with polygamy, and then he's saying we shouldn't be polygamists, right, that's fine. Right, for me, this one fits the best. And, and this, was, this is a tough phrase. I mean, it, it's one that I, I studied extensively this week because I didn't know what it meant. All right? And this is what I think, uh, but I also understand that I could be wrong. All right? And so that's kind of where we're at with that. He's talking about, in my opinion, the moral character. Is he faithful to his spouse? Uh, the, the next thing he says is talking about children and looking at their children and saying, are they believers and are they wild and disobedient or not? Uh, this word wild, we, we've seen it before. In, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable. And in the story, he, he says, uh, talks about a younger 
a child coming to his father and saying, Dad, I want my entire inheritance. And his dad gives him all the money, and he goes off, and he spends it on wine and women and ends up being broke and sleeping with pigs. All right, and so that's kind of the story, and that word that we give that child is called prodigal. All right, and that is the same word here for wild. Is the child living a crazy life? Are they going out and partying and having fun uh, according to the world, or are they themselves faithful to God? Now, I think it's important that we make a distinction here. See, there's a difference between uh, a child messing up, a person messing up, and and, and them being a mess up, if that makes sense. It's a difference between a child lying one time and a child being a liar consistently. And there's an important difference in that. An example from my life this week, I'm going to pick on one of my daughters. I won't tell you who, because they're in the room, so i got to be kind today. We uh, uh, dug up the area around my porch and was just trying to decide whether or not we wanted to level it off or not, and we were talking about the bricks and maybe just replacing them or pouring it. So we are looking at a different option, and one of my daughters was outside listening to us, uh, and, and as I went to uh, go fill in the hole, uh, she decided that she was going to help us take the bricks off. And so she took this big stick, and, and looking at the loose bricks, all right, quote-unquote there, uh, she started to slam the stick on these bricks, and she chipped off like three or four of them. And to which I'm like, what did you do? All right, and, and in that moment, she was destructive, right? All right, but she is not a destructive child. There's a difference. While she did this, and I told her, don't ever do that again, and I hope that she doesn't, she herself isn't going around on a typical basis breaking things just to break them. And so there's a difference. And I think that's when we're looking at the child of the elder. It's okay for them to make mistakes because we all sin. But is the child consistently wild and consistently disobedient to their parents, or do they have those moments? And I think those are two different things. And so when we're looking at uh, these men who are going to be elders, we have to first look at their family. What is their family like? Are they faithful to their wife? Do they have children who follow and listen them? Or are they, it's just chaos in their family. And Timothy gives us a great uh, understanding of why this is important. Timothy tells us uh, that the elder is to manage God's household, and if he can't manage his own family, then how can he be expected to manage the God's household well? And so that's the importance of this, and, and I think it all comes down to moral character, right? Is he blameless when it comes to his family? Now, we, we continue uh, reading in verse 7 a couple of things. Uh, he says, since an overseer uh, manages God's household, he must be blameless, all right, and, and, and when we look at elders in the New Testament, we aren't really told what they do. All right? There's only a few things that they do. We're told that they are shepherds. We're told here that they uh, manage God's household. But what does that mean? Your guess is as good as mine. All right? we, we can kind of maybe look at the image of a steward, a manager, uh, who is over the uh, owner's ho- household, and he makes sure that all the crops are being done right and all the people are taken care of we could look at it like that and i think that's probably an appropriate way to look at it but how does that translate into 21st century uh, america that's a little bit more difficult all right and so there's a lot of again 
we describe what's going on, it's not always prescription. All right, and so we have to keep that in mind with this. Okay, so he says that the overseer manages God's household, and he must be blameless. This word blameless again. And look, and it's kind of a generic word, okay? We don't, the best way that I can use to describe this, right, is someone brings you to court, and they brought a charge to you, but it can't stick. All right, you're guiltless. They can't tell you that you're guilty, that there's something to blame you for. And so that's kind of the idea with this, okay? But what does it mean? Well, luckily for us, Paul explains what he means by blameless in the rest of this verse. He says this, They must be blameless, which means that they are not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. So he gives us a couple of things that they're not, uh, in verse 8, he's going to give us a couple things that they are, but let's look at these not things first. Uh, the first thing that they're not uh, is that they're not uh, overbearing. And then the word here, it, it really means arbitrary in their decision making. See, sometimes there are people who get put in charge of things, and their decisions that they make is all about promoting themselves, seeing themselves higher up in society. Right, they make decisions not based on, on what's right and what's wrong, but rather what's best for them. Right, and that's arbitrary, that's overbearing uh, in this sense. Right, and so as an elder, that's not who they're supposed to be. Right, the next thing is, is that they're not quick-tempered. Right, and this is where uh, anger is just underneath the surface all the time, and it just takes a spark for them to come up and, and have rage and then come back down. And come up and have rage and come back down. And the anger is often associated with revenge. Somebody's done something bad to me, and I'm going to get revenge on them. All right, and so that's kind of the idea of being quick-tempered. Uh, and, and, and this is not what an elder should be. An elder should be forgiving and loving instead. Uh, they, we're told that they're not to be uh, given over to drunkenness, so they should not be drunkards. All right, and this is important because alcohol is destructive. Alcohol uh, is addictive. And as elders, these men are not to be uh, enslaved to something other than God. And I think that's the important understanding of that is, is they should be slaves to God, servants of God, and not to anything else. Uh, he then says not, they're not seeking after dishonest gain. As managers of God's household, uh, our elders, they have a lot of leeway into where the funds of the church will go. When we collect offerings, they kind of decide where they will go. And it's a temptation for anyone to, to use those funds to improve their own financial security. Now, there are safeguards at Kentucky Road that that doesn't happen, all right, but it doesn't mean that's not the case in other churches. And so when we're looking at leaders of the church, they need to not be seeking their own gain financially. All right, so those are some things that the elders are not to be when we're talking about blameless. Here's some things that they are to be in verse 8. Uh, we see rather he, they must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Uh, this idea of hospitable, it, it's a really cool word. Uh, it means to love the stranger. All right, and in that world, they had hotels, but it wasn't someplace you wanted to stay. A lot of bad things happen. All right, and so, so when people came into town, the, that was kind of their last option. 
And what was kind of expected of everybody, but especially among the Christians, is that you would open your homes to strangers, to people you don't know, and you would take care of them. All right, and so that's, as elders, they are to be hospitable. All right, they are to be uh, lovers of what is good. All right, not delighting in evil, not delighting that something bad happened, but loving the goodness that is God and the good things uh, that are produced from that. Uh, they're to be self-controlled and disciplined. All right? the, the, everything about them is to be under control. Their actions, their words, their thoughts, are they in control of that? Uh, they're to be upright and holy. And this idea of upright is very close to blameless. All right, where blameless is you brought to court and you can't get anything to stick to them. Upright means that you're trying to, to think about how to bring them to court and you can't find anything to do so. Are they upright and are they holy? Now, in all of these things, we have to understand that doesn't mean that they're perfect. Right, being blameless is not being perfect. Right, there are going to be times where you get angry. There are going to be times that you don't make wise decisions. There are going to be times that you're not hospitable or that you don't love what is good. Right, but just because those are times in that doesn't automatically disqualify you. If you're consistently hospitable, consistently in self-control, consistently doing these things that cause you to be blameless, that is what qualifies you. On top of that, I think every one of these things that is talked about as elders are really things as Christians we need in our lives. See, elders, if anything, they are examples for the rest of us. They are men that you can look to and say, you know what, that's what it means to follow God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And elders should be men that we are willing to go after and say, you know what, that's, I'm going to follow them. I'm going to live by their example. And I think that's uh, what we get from this. The last thing Paul says is this. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose him. Now, the last thing is that they have to know what the truth is. I mean, you don't want a leader of the church who doesn't know his Bible or who doesn't know what the message of grace is. I mean, that, that's kind of defeating the point. Right, the elders uh, in Timothy were told that they are to be people who can teach and people who know what is right. So if I ever come up here and say something that is wrong, and I hope that's never the case, the elders should be one of the first people to say, you know what, that's not right, Tony. And if they did it in the middle of the sermon, I'd have to stop a moment and think about it. Okay, am I right? Why not? All right, and that's kind of their goal. That's kind of their job, to safeguard the church. And they have to know what is the truth, and they have to be able to defend it. That is what elders are to be. And I think we can see from these passages in Titus that, that it's not a job for just anyone in the church. It is a job for the few. The few that meet this high standard. And when we look at elders and we look at who we're going to be placing into leadership, we have to ask that question, are they blameless? Not necessarily checking off a list of saying, yeah, 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 they're blameless. All right? But looking at that wholeheartedly, are, is their life a blameless life? 
Now, I said that there's not really an invitation, so this is kind of my invitation. If you want to be an elder and you think you're blameless, you should come forward, all right? But that's, a, that's kind of my invitation for that. But I think this is what we need to take from this, is that there are people in the church that are examples for us, how, who we should follow and how they're living their lives. And these are the men uh, that are leaders of the church, and we should be able to look at them and say, they are blameless. And I should follow that example. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, for the words that Paul gave Titus. Uh, we, we ask, Lord, in our lives uh, that we will be fine people in our church who are this blameless, that, that the men of the church can live up to this standard. Uh, it, it would be my ideal, God, that, that all of us could be called blameless. And that's not always realistic, but Lord, I just pray that that is our goal in our lives, that we can follow you with all that we are. Uh, we just are thankful, God, that you give us the ability to do this, that through Jesus we have forgiveness from the mistakes that we make, and that we can be called upright and blameless like your son. And it's him that we are grateful and that we pray today. Amen.